You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hey, this is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And so uh, happy to be joined by Miranda again this week. And we are talking about something. um, So a while back, we recorded an episode about fMRIs, right? Indeed. Yeah, and so uh, this is just sort of a continuation of of looking of of looking at these systems by which we investigate what's going on inside of us, especially when we're interested in psychological phenomenon. And so we have this fascinating, what might be called a microcosm, right, <laughs> <laughs> of inner workings that are going on. I mean, in our brain and the rest of our body, all things that are sort of on this biological level, we don't have a lot of access to just through direct observation. Yeah. And it's not until recently, really, that we've been able to even begin exploring uh, that microcosm. Yeah. And so uh, that's, you know, largely thanks to a lot of the research and technology that has uh, developed that helps us sort of uncover the mystery of, of how the pieces of our bodies sort of work and how they fit together and all that. And, uh, you know, that the skin, this thing on the outside of us that covers all of us, you know, <laughs> they used to pose this arbitrary barrier that uh, to, to our being able to understand how a lot of our physical features, but I mean, you know, you strip off the skin, you still got like muscles and stuff. It's difficult to penetrate and see how everything works together. And I say skin, but I mean, obviously, there's there's more to this bones. And there's yes. Our or at the very least, by things. Yeah. At the very least, while an organism is alive and well, it's pretty tricky, or it was pretty tricky for a very long time to observe the inner workings and all of those events. We have these set of physical features, all living creatures do. And those sort of set the context and the limitation for the range of things that we're capable of doing. So, for example, the relative orientation of our muscles and bones really set the limit on how strong and how fast we can sort of become. And also, they sort of guide the extent to which what it looks like when we grasp things and move things and lift things. All of that is affected by the way our bodies are shaped, right? Because if I had much larger bones and muscles in my arms and maybe had longer fingers and many more fingers, all of these things oriented in different ways would affect then that would then set the context in which I'm able to interact with the rest of the world around me. You might be a, an Olympic swimmer rather than recording a podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, it, and it's even possible that I, I could have become an Olympic swimmer if I had spent the time and like training to build up that coordination. Um, but what I, I'll never do things like I'll never fly. Um, I'll never be able to hold my breath underwater for hours at a time. Um, I can't. You can't hop in the air like a kangaroo. There you go. Um, I, I can't like launch myself like a snake can. Um, there's, you know, obviously all these animals are very different in the way that they do things. And, and all of that is set by the limitations of our biology. So it's, it's kind of cool that we can look at and see more detail about what that biological system looks like. And as I mentioned a while back, we covered that fMRI or um, functional magnetic resonance imaging technology. And so this is another technology we're covering today and that enables us to peer inside the body. And so the first one, we're talking about two. The first one is called a CT scan, sometimes referred to as a CAT scan, and uh, which is short for computed tomography, which I'll get into that term a little bit. And then another one called a PET scan, which is short for positron emission tomography, which is such a cool name. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like the future. Right? But it's now. That would be a total like Star Trek f- sounding thing, I think. Yeah, it's like phaser and... 
<laughs> get my tricorder and my positron Tron emission tomography. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds very sciencey. <laughs> so PET or PET is how it's frequently referred to. That's what it's called for short. So let's start by diving into the CT scans. Sure. Okay. All right. In, as I mentioned, CT stands for computed tomography. And the computed part implies that the images that are produced by these scans that it does, they're um, produced by a computer. And um, they're actually taken from an x-ray scan, which I'm going to get into what that sort of looks like because it's different from a normal x-ray that you might get for like a broken bone or something. And then tomography comes from Greek tomos, meaning slice or section, and graphia, meaning write, draw, or sort of otherwise produce an image of some kind, right? And so together you get this, uh, this, this slice of a image and, uh, that is produced by a computer, quite aptly named yes yeah i think that they they really were going <laughs> for the that. yeah the direct naming of this um not as cool as positron emission but you know uh tomography we'll get there <laughs> <laughs> so anyway in modern use tomography really means a technique for displaying a representation of a cross section through a human body or other solid object using x-rays or ultrasound so it doesn't necessarily have to be x-rays but often maybe usually is mm -hmm. and um, i'll do a really quick background on x-rays just i think they're really fascinating and they're maybe other neat. people would want to know yeah yeah right? and so um x-rays are electromagnetic radiation and so they're part of the electromagnetic spectrum said another way uh they are a form of light right one however that the frequencies are way above the range that we could actually see with our eyes like our the the whole spectrum of light that exists we can see a, a sort of a narrow band of that spectrum they call it the visible light that really refers to what humans interact with not what other there are other creatures who see other parts of the, that light spectrum but uh x-rays are actually on that spectrum they are a form of light um and it, it pretty potent one actually like i said this is this is pretty beyond our evolved eyeballs and what they're capable of detecting um so much so that we would actually see ultraviolet light long before we would ever see x-rays although wow. i guess it's yeah it's worth pointing out i suppose that there's not a real clear boundary between x-rays and and uh ultraviolet but you know but that's that's the whole light spectrum anyway that's they sort of fade from one set of range into another so there was a lot to learn and unpack in this. And so um, I'm just going to sort of summarize this the best way that I understand it from the, the CT scan. And actually, so I'll, I'll go ahead and preface this first by saying that I had, I was under the impression this was more involved with the diagnostics in psychology than it actually ended up being. And I don't know where I got that impression, but I still thought it was pretty fascinating and at least worth sort of describing briefly. And so um, again, just let's stick with the x-rays for a second. Bear with me. I know this is kind of a lot, um, but essentially it goes like this. An X-ray as a beam of light essentially casts this shadow. That's basically a 2D shadow like any shadow would be. When that light hits things, it is absorbed or scattered by denser matter like bones. So when it travels through bones, it actually gets absorbed or scattered by the bones, but it passes through softer tissue. Right. And so that light that hits the bones doesn't actually burn the image onto the material that that it does end up hitting. And so it sort of casts this negative shadow. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, so, absolutely. OK, perfect. OK, I want to make sure I'm saying that in a way that sort of makes sense. And so, as I said, like when it passes through things like skin and and muscle tissue. And so this makes x-rays pretty ideal for peering inside the body because all of that soft stuff, it doesn't it doesn't really cast that much of a shadow. 
However, there are many soft parts that you kind of want to see, right? Radiologists, which are the people who do those kinds of scans, x-rays and other things, they can introduce this, what they call a contrasting agent. I was thinking more like a secret agent. Like they go in and they like expose. (laughs) Anyway, so they introduce this contrasting agent uh, that can be injected into specific areas or specific systems inside the body. And what happens is that this agent acts sort of like that bone matter in the sense that it creates a little bit more density so that it can create that shadow. So it might live inside of a soft tissue. Like let's say you wanted to look at someone's, I don't know, stomach maybe i don't even know if they they would work there but let's just say that it would um then rather than the x-rays just passing right through it it would actually hit that chemical that's been introduced to that system and then that way it can it casts a little bit more of a shadow you can see more detail about that specific system very cool yes uh x-rays are a form of uh, radiation therefore long exposure to them can be dangerous there are plenty of disgusting images you can find online about um, x-ray burns that people have suffered um the people who discovered this They sort of had an idea that it was dangerous, but not all of them really knew. So some people did have some, you know, negative sort of things happen from this. Well, Marie Curry's, uh, uh, her lab books are still radioactive and have to be kept um, under lead (laughs) to this day. And it's been, it's been over a hundred years. Yeah, as I understand it, they just walked around with like radioactive material in their pockets. Yeah. Just Just in their, yeah. (laughs) Just juggle them all around uh, the lab so thankful to the science that they did and also so sad that it was like not that well known how dangerous radiation poisoning would be so we we have actually evolved to um be resistant to you know some forms or lengths of radiation to an extent like we can tolerate a certain amount of radiation but um not in the extent to which an x is needed to create an x-ray if we were exposed to it for a long period of time this is why when you go to the dentist they cover you with sort of sort of a lead shawl so it's not passing too much radiation through other parts of your body and then they go hide hide behind a giant wall (laughs) making you think uh what's this shawl doing (laughs) that you have to be all the way over there um but anyway it's just kind of funny so that's how they do those x-rays uh what happens is um when the when the x-ray it gets like scattered by a type of material and they use different types of metals that will do that and that sort of makes the x-ray happen but anyway uh let's go ahead and back into the ct scan we got a little off track there and so uh what a ct scan does is it takes these focused beams of x-rays so rather than it just being this one shot boom sort of picture like you would with a camera it sort of focuses a beam of light and it creates this slice of an image it's pretty thin image on a computer if they were to create sort of a model it'd be one to ten millimeters it sort of depends on the machine you're using and all that sort of thing and what they do is they stack all these slices to create a sort of 3d model it's almost like if you're 3d printing something but with an x-ray image and that's how the computer sort of yeah that's how the computer sort of built it and um and it it makes this model of someone's innards right the inside of whatever part of their body you're trying to study and uh and rather than it being like i said this that one two-dimensional shot from a normal uh, x-ray because uh basically what happens is you come in here you lie on this table and um uh, the part of your body being scanned it passes through a tube so you're sort of being funneled through a tube and while you're being funneled through this thing is rotating around that part of your body shooting this x-ray beam through that part of your body which is being hit by a sensor on the other side every time it goes through a full rotation it has that that sliced image now sort of like if you ever sliced a pineapple you sort of go through and you create these like levels like anyway. now that sounds um, super star trek yeah, all of right. that 
<laughs> nice. Um, and so it sends that scanned image to a computer. And then just like the fMRI, it has to run those sensed data or images or you know whatever thing was picked up through a really complex set of mathematical functions. And then that translates the data into an image. So it's not as specific, like one-on-one -on -one correlation as taking a picture of something. Because what has to happen is those those light images have to be aggregated by the computer following a very specific algorithm that then creates um, this, it, like I said, it sort of builds this 3D model of it inside the computer. So you, you are relying quite a bit on the sophistication of the computer and the software inside the computer to, uh, to create a reasonable replica of the images that it took, right? So that's really interesting. So in a way, it's, it is kind of a secondary record or a secondary image of the primary thing being observed yeah exactly and this is this is true for most of these internal things is you're not getting necessarily a direct look you're getting more of a representation of what it a very very close representation of what seems to be happening now i would say an x-ray is about as close of a direct representation as you can get because again it's just a light casting a shadow but this one's not actually casting a shadow onto anything but a sensor that's detecting that as a certain amount of data where it's receiving more or less you know um x-ray beams i guess um than it would from other parts of the body and then it, it then takes those and aggregates them in the computer because otherwise you would like if you were to just try and get a slice of this it would look like nothing right yeah. if it was just casting like a long spirally shadow thing around it would because it would constantly be hitting a little bit of soft tissue here a little bit of hard tissue there and if you're to lay that out in a long stream it would just look like mostly black with a little bit of white spots here and there yeah. so you need the computer to do that aggregating and anyway, I mean, that's that's really the gist of how the CT scan works. And um, I'm going to go into the uses of this in just a second. And what I'm going to do first is I'm going to break down the PET scans and how that works. And then we'll go into where and how these things are sort of used. Um, if that seems like an appropriate order. I don't know. Does that seem reasonable? That sounds cool to me. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. And so uh, just one quick thing. Like I said... You are being exposed to radiation. You're often being injected with some kind of chemical that's going to react to those x-rays so that they have something to hit. Um, but all of that being the case, just an enormous amount of research has been done on this to really show that this is pretty safe. Even for people with pretty sensitive conditions, such as pregnancy, this has been shown to be safe. So um, this, this is something that you don't really need to worry about the dangers of this as a diagnostic tool. Cool. Good to know. All right. Getting to our really cool named one. Positron <laughs> emission transmitter? Tomography? <laughs> Transmitter. <laughs> Tomography. <laughs> so close. Oh, man. Um, okay. So um, positron emission, what what that means, I know those are some awesome words, but uh, they just, that refers to the fact that there is a radioactive drug that we're going to go into and that gets in your body. And that drug that's radioactive, what it does is it emits gamma radiation. And then that gamma radiation that it emits is scanned by the computer. And that's pretty much what positron emission means. Okay. Okay. And then the tomography part just again refers to the fact that it's, you know, same as the computed tomography, it is a image that is produced. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at. Now these are relatively quick, um, the way that they work. I mean, they are 
I don't know what you'd mean by quick. It's not like you'd go in for a surgery and have to stay the night in order to get a PET scan. It's about 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, basically, you have an appointment, you go into your friendly clinic, and you say, hey, I'm here to get a PET scan. And they're like, sure, we're doing two for one. Um, and <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so you go in to this room. It's sort of this, it actually looks pretty similar to an MRI machine. You've got this large machine with sort of a donut shaped hole in it, which is to say it sort of curves inward and is pretty circular. You lie on a table and while you're laying there getting scanned, you're going to hear this sort of buzzing clicking sound. And, uh, and then it goes on for, like I said, 30 to 45 minutes and then you're done and you usually are just going to leave. Base, it's generally recommended that after you get this done, you drink a lot of fluids uh, to try and sort of run that radioactive drug. I'm going to go over in a second through your body to try and get out of there. So let's, let's get into that actually. So in order for this to work, they're going to introduce some kind of dye to the body. And as I mentioned, this is a radioactive chemical that it radiates, it emits gamma radiation and it's either injected or it can be ingested. And I saw two different ways. You can either drink it or you can like inhale it through a gas, I guess. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah. And so this, that contains that radioactive drug and there's actually many, many, many types of this radioactive drug and they might do something very specific and they might be designed specifically to cater to a particular part of the body that is being scanned. And they generally just call these drugs tracers. Um, and so I'll, I'll probably go back and forth between calling them drugs and tracers, but um, that's what that means. Going back to this fact that you are, in fact, ingesting a radioactive chemical, there is some risk to this. <laughs> now, the radioactive effect really doesn't last very long. I saw some that described it being only, you know, a, less than a minute and some of them being... A, um, up to 12 hours, um, but it, it's generally almost always going to be gone after a day, unless you get a super heavy dose of it for some reason. And it also does not really affect normal body processes. Now, that being the case, it really is not advised that pregnant women to go through this, go through a PET scan, um, and also probably not people who have like an allergic reaction to the drug, um, although I'm not sure how you would know that unless you <laughs> got it injected into you. I just, I just, you know, I came across some ingestible radiation one day and... Uh, yeah. I should try this and I see if I'm allergic to it. I just gave it a shot it. and broke out in hives all over. Yeah. I, maybe they should have like radioactive gummy bears you can take and see if you're allergic to them. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, it won't kill you. Just give it a shot. Yeah. Don't have too many. Oh, um, no. They even go so far as to recommend avoiding pregnant women for up to 12 hours after you've had the PET scan, just because you might be continuing to emit radiation. I don't know if this would necessarily have anything to do with going through other things like going through like the scanner at the airport. I'm not sure. You would probably be, yeah, you would be like, considered some sort of walking bomb or something <laughs> his whole body is a threat yes <laughs> um i don't think it works exactly like in spider-man um but maybe if you get bitten by a spider while you're in the machine oh wow by radioactive some crazy spider? things yeah that makes sense <laughs> or just if the spider venom intermingles with the tracer there you go and then you're just yeah superhero was born all right so um as far as uh the research that i was able to do on this the tracers essentially kind of do two things one they react to the scan of the system that's doing the scanning and they appear as these bright spots so they allow the scan to focus on specific things specific processes and specific parts of the body and that means that two the other thing they do is they build up and um, they pool up in these areas with sort of higher chemical activity, such as a cancer or a tumor, basically 
generally speaking, whether wherever there's increased blood flow, but it doesn't have to be just blood. It can be other things. It can be like neurotransmitters and stuff. Cool. Okay. So, and because these these the chemicals that are in in here, um, they're so small that the changes can be observed at this this level at which the individual cells operate in the body and the brain. So it's very very sort of small uh, level at which this is observed, right? Okay. 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 So what's important here, and this is going back to what we discussed when we did our fMRI episode. This is not actually measuring the specific activity in the body and. For the bulk of this, we're going to be talking about the brain because obviously if we're talking about psychology, we're usually talking about the brain. That's the organ of interest. Kidneys are great. Yep. Hearts. Love them. Yep. I'm a huge fan of my lungs. They Mm -hmm. keep me alive. Liver. Um, Big fan. Yep. Weird Al does a whole song about the importance of the pancreas. Um, It's pretty good. (laughs) There you go. after a Beach Boys song, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But for the Sigmar discussion, brain, that organ. Yes. Perfect. Okay, so again, just going back to the fact that this is not actually measuring brain activity, what it's measuring is, and it's based on the assumption that the increased presence of blood or other neurotransmitters in certain parts of the brain is associated with increased activity, which means that that part of the brain is more heavily involved in a particular process, and that therefore the tracers when aggregated to those places accurately, again, this is an assumption, accurately represent that activity. I mean, that raises a few questions, though, right? Yeah. Like, for example, what if the tracer doesn't actually disperse fully in the brain? So there might be other parts that are actually pretty heavily involved, but for whatever reason, the system that brought the tracer there didn't also take it to that part of the brain that's involved. How would you know? Because you'd only ever see it show up in that one region. Mm. Another question I had was, what else might account for that pattern of clustering of that tracer or that that radioactive drug might it be bonding to other types of chemicals or other things that are happening in the brain is it possible that the way that the system moves through the brain it sort of allows it to collect and pool in a particular area just because of the way things flow right i'm thinking like um I don't know if you imagine like a river running and there are oftentimes along the bank of a river, for those people who are listening to this, who've ever seen a river, <laughs> I hope there's a lot of you, you'll often see these parts where the water will sort of stop and pool up. Um, even though the water's sort of rushing by it, some like, is it possible that things like that happen in the body? I don't know. That the physio, the, the physiology of the brain, the actual topography of the surface perhaps uh, lends itself to certain things pooling in different places, you mean? Yeah, that's basically it. And so actually, um, in our notes here, I put this giant picture of of what a PET scan sort of looks like. And so I'm going to try and, I don't know, the real utility in describing this on an auditory medium, like a podcast. (laughs) But if you look at it, you see this sort of uh, this blue glow around what this thing that's sort of vaguely shaped like a brain that's mostly reddish orange with a bunch of blue spots in the middle and almost is symmetrical going from one side to the other where you have uh, like if you had folded it in half and then opened it with the sort of red ink. There's not a lot of specific detail that you can see in here. And again, it's important that what you're actually looking at when you see this image is a computer's interpretation of the relative level of radiation that it detects in particular areas of the brain. And in the fMRI, we discussed the fact that the computer has to average this voxel, which which contains something like 10 million neurons or something, 
and decide whether or not there is enough there to say that that is an active region. Well, this one's not doing exactly that because it's actually just attending to the total aggregate of that tracer that's in the brain. That being said, it is taking an average and it's taking it sort of on a pretty sort of zoomed out way, right? You're looking at, we've got just millions and millions and millions of neurons that are going on. And so it's possible that some neurons are doing, uh, are involved in a particular connection while neurons underneath them are not in that same connection, but maybe involved in something else. And again, I've pointed out many times, our brains are sort of constantly always doing something. And so in an fMRI, what they do is they get a baseline level of the brain activity that's going on to sort of be able to wash out that noise when they do the overall analysis. I didn't read anything about that in here. I think what they just look for is where are they seeing this pool up and average um, in these scans. And this is over, again, about 30 minutes to 45 minutes of how much happens inside of that period of time that you can get one snapshot image that really tells you uh, what's going on um, or, you know, even many, many snapshot images, but you know, how representative is that, especially when you're in a totally unique environment, like this giant machine where your head's just sort of poking in there <laughs> and they might be throwing like information at you. Like, just imagine what this is like. Well, what if the processes that we use to imagine are somewhat different from the processes we use when we're actually engaged in that circumstance? And not to say that this isn't useful. I always have to throw that caveat in here. Of course, there is utility in this. And just, I always want to be as, I guess, just like as conservative as possible about what we can actually extract from something that is so far removed from the event itself. All right, so let's hit some of the uses of this thing. Sure, yeah. Well, with the CT scan, uh, it's pretty clear that it's mostly used for medical research and diagnosis. They're often used for brain scans because they're very precise and detailed, and especially in comparison to a general x-ray. So they're really useful for addressing concerns that have to do with brain damage or lesions or, or anything like that. Um, anything to where a scan would react to some density of material that would give some give some information about those types of conditions. And if an fMRI might not be sensitive enough to detect those, then a CT scan could be could be pretty useful. So this isn't really this doesn't look too much at uh, mental disorders or, or it's not really used for psychological purposes. Is that right? I mean, yeah, uh, it's not used as much as I thought it was to diagnose specific like mental disorders as much as just getting sort of an overall view of the relative physical status of the brain. So um, it'll give you a pretty precise image of damage caused to the brain um, and any other parts of the body. This is used like the MRI used at any, any part of the body, really. Um, but again, we're the brain organ of interest, as you mentioned. It, it allows a very detailed image to be produced by it. But it's that sort of static, this is just the image, not necessarily... This is um, what it looks like when there's activity going on during mm -hmm. this particular mental episode, right? Yeah, so it's very much a snapshot rather than a film. Um, yeah, of what's of what's actually happening. Yeah, good to know. Okay. And so for the PET scans, the way that they're usually used, um, this is often this is used for a lot of things, and um, in psychology, it is used for diagnosing specific neurological disorders. We'll get into, and uh, many people do or have attempted to use these for diagnosing other sort of mental health disorders, right? And so the way that this works, as I mentioned, there's that tracer drug, 
in the brain, they usually attach this to glucose. Not necessarily, but um, glucose is the main source of metabolic energy used by the brain. So when the brain is active in particular regions, it's probably almost certainly consuming large amounts of glucose. And therefore, if the tracer drug is attached to that glucose and is pooling up in those regions of the brain, then if the assumptions are correct, then you're looking at where the activity is primarily taking place in the brain. And that, you know, people, what they tend to do with that information is say like, oh, look, when we were introducing this stimuli or we were asking someone to behave as if they were in this particular circumstance, whatever that might be, then we saw that there was an increase in this part of the brain. Therefore, we will say that this part of the brain is correlated with this type of neurological or this, this type of mental activity. So they'll say something like, we saw, if you do enough of these, we see that in the, the anterior insula of the brain, there is an increased amount of activity there, this particular tracer, when people are consciously interacting with their emotions and what we call consciously interacting and with what we call emotions, I guess. And so that means what they'll then say is whenever we see damage done to this particular part of the brain, we would expect that that would disrupt this uh, conscious experience of emotions because that's what that part of the, the brain does. So you can see already how there's sort of taken a few, they're taking that correlation causation thing and saying, well, we don't have a lot of direct information, but we did say that this is correlated. So we're going to go ahead and say that they are causally related in some way, uh, which, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it seems like it's fine to say that that did happen. And I don't know if we can always say that we can always predict exactly what's going to happen when something else happens inside of that part of the brain because our brains are so complex. So many parts of our brain are so interrelated with other parts of our body and our brain and interact in such a dynamic way with our environment. So, I don't know, there's, there's just there's a lot of things to sort of consider whenever you're thinking about these sort of things. In addition to that, so as I mentioned, there's the glucose. The tracers can act also target specific neurotransmitters, and those are just chemicals that sort of help the brain do its thing <laughs> to put it literally loosely the scan will monitor high levels of glucose consumption by the brain in particular areas and it is it will also attach to neurotransmitters to look for specific patterns of activity with those neurotransmitters in the brain as well and this has been used by psychologists and neurologists and what have you to diagnose specific disorders such as alzheimer's depression epilepsy parkinson's and other um head traumas so miranda why don't you uh you had uh some stuff on alzheimer's yeah and i'm gonna i'll go ahead and preface this by starting just saying that a lot of people say alzheimer's or alzheimer's there's no t in this word it's alzheimer's yes i think that what happened was that transition from the l to the z the ols has sort of a it's a hard transition to make and so people sort of introduce that sound to it alzheimer's even though it doesn't actually exist so yeah for those of you who have ever wondered alzheimer's and i think it was exasperated by the fact that you know alzheimer's tends to afflict people who are elderly and Mm -hmm. uh it does sound a little bit like old timers and so alzheimer's (laughs) disease old timers disease uh that's hilarious that's 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 kind of what i had initially thought when i first heard about this pretty devastating diagnosis which you know is um it is a you know it is a neurological disorder in which the brain gradually and it's faster or slower depending on the person it, it kind of expresses itself in in many ways um it begins to deteriorate and this means 
on the biological level, there's a decrease in the glucose metabolism in the brain. So a PET scan can absolutely help determine if the deteriorating cognitive performance is actually due to Alzheimer's as opposed to something else. Um, you know, what this can kind of look at, look like uh, as far as symptoms go is, you know, usually short-term memory um, becomes really difficult. And then, and then more and more as the disease progresses, older memories are forgotten as well. Yeah. And it can affect, because it is a de- um, degenerative disease, it can affect so many processes in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. You put, you put it very well. Like this is, this is a pretty uh, rough uh, disease to have to suffer. Another one that I mentioned is epilepsy. And so just as a brief overview, uh, for those of you who don't know or weren't sure, epilepsy is a disorder in which the brain cells are disturbed um, in some way, resulting in seizures. And specifically, the diagnosis sort of uh, is made if it occurs two or more times and is specifically unprovoked. And what they mean by unprovoked is mean is that the seizures were not caused by some other reversible medical condition or some other drug or withdrawal from a drug, maybe. And uh, epilepsy, it, it can be caused by brain damage. Uh, I, I want to specify here. Epilepsy is not caused by drugs, but drugs can cause seizures and, and some other medical conditions can cause seizures. And so as long as those two seizures are not caused by those drugs or other medical conditions. That's when it would qualify as epilepsy. And epilepsy can be brought on by brain damage, um, but actually in a lot of cases, if, if maybe not even most cases, it's the, the cause is completely unknown. And so this, the process for this is actually relatively straightforward, they found out, because these PET scans um, can look at this activity in the brain, um, it's relatively simple to look and see where brain activity builds up immediately prior to a seizure and attempt to isolate the region of the brain that quote unquote causes or is responsible for the seizure. And this is specifically done often if there is the intent of sort of performing a surgical procedure um, to intervene on that part of the brain. So they might do an incision or they might even remove a whole section of the brain uh, in order to, to try and prevent those uh, seizures from happening anymore because they can be so disruptive um, in someone's life. Absolutely. So another disorder that PET scans are often used to get a little bit more information on is Parkinson's. So Parkinson's is a disorder of the central nervous system, and it tends to disrupt voluntary movement. And so we often see this characterized by shaking and tremors, not the movie of the under underground worms with Kevin Bacon. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, as an actual physical, physical shape, shaking of the extremities and people with Parkinson's, they do have uh, a decreased level of dopamine in their system. So the tracers, uh, use, they can mimic the neurotransmitter dopamine and then look for changes in this system and specifically the reduced levels of uptake of that transmitter, allowing the doctor to determine to an extent if the patient actually has Parkinson's. Yeah, and so that's it's certainly helpful early on if it's unclear whether that person is is has Parkinson's disease, if any symptoms they might be experiencing are due to that or something else. PET scans they're pretty sensitive to being able to look at this and uh, and to maybe rule it out if nothing else as a way of diagnosing that. So, and then uh, the the last one I mentioned was um, depression, and so this one is I think a little bit trickier from the other ones. So we talked about the first three really relating to the general well-being of the brain, especially in the its sort of normal functioning. I feel like that's maybe a little bit misleading with what I'm going to talk about with depression, but. 
we'll, we'll move into it and see how it goes. Depression, again, you know, just a brief overview. It's a mental health disorder that's characterized essentially by a loss of interest in activities, um, usually an impacted quality of life and a persistent feeling of sadness, often sort of this sense of being disconnected from purpose and meaning in life. So obviously some people have looked at this and said, well, there are obvious biological factors going on in those who experience depression. Okay, sure, that's fair. And there's also these complex social factors and other history, and there's just a lot of things that are involved in the extent to which people experience depression, how long it lasts, how intense it is, how prevalent it is, what the actual experience is like. And so some researchers have really been trying to find ways to look for those biological markers in depression. Well, you kind of might ask why, what are they trying to do with that? Um, is it used for diagnostic purposes? Well, no, not really. Um, there are some people who have attempted to do that and they've shown very colorful images of what a depressed brain versus a non-depressed brain looks like. But I mean, it's really hard to make that determination because there's just so many factors going into this and what it really means to you know, what are you comparing that against? How do you know that that person was was depressed versus experiencing something else and the person that you compared them to was not depressed or, you know, everybody's brain's going to work a little bit differently. So is it possible that you could have one person whose brain just looks a little bit different from someone else? And anyway, it's, it's all complicated. I was looking at a specific study where they used this PET scan technique and they had 63 adults ages 18 to 60 and they were specifically comparing 12 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy versus sort of a common pharmaceutical drug intervention. And so at the uh, after these 12 weeks, both groups reported similar rates of success after the treatment in terms of how well they responded to the treatment and improving their symptoms of depression. And that was about 36 to 40% of the individuals. Now, in this study, I didn't see, uh, I, was, I was reading this from an article that was the report of the study. They didn't mention any group that did not have the intervention to compare to. So it's hard to say, would those people have also changed after this? I mean, you'd assume no, but you just don't know for sure if they aren't there. So one of those factors to consider when sort of weighing uh, what this research could possibly mean. Anyway, what they saw was that there was an increased level of activity in the anterior insula, the part of the brain I mentioned earlier, because it was going to be coming up. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so um, this part of the brain, they generally describe as being associated with the conscious awareness of emotions. And so that there was an increased level of activity in that part of the brain in the group that successfully responded to the drug. Okay. However, there was no correlation to an increased level of uh, activity in that region of the brain and the people who were in that cognitive behavioral therapy group. However, conversely, and interestingly, the a decreased level of activity in that region of the brain was actually associated with a successful outcome for the cognitive mm. behavioral therapy group, but not the drug group. So it's sort of like hard to say the extent to which that region of the brain was necessarily the contributing factor. It was correlated, but in one sense, it was correlated in a decreased level with success on one intervention and an increased level with success for a different intervention. And I just want to I have a note on here because this article just phrased this in a really funny way. So I'm going to read exactly what they say <laughs> and we're going to interpret it the best we can. Okay. So quote, this is the, sorry, this is not quote yet. <laughs> 
there is the, like the first sentence they're describing what this article is going to be about as they're reporting on the results of the study. So here's what they say, quote, a brain imaging technique may help predict whether people with major depression will respond best to treatment with psychotherapy or a commonly prescribed drug, end quote. I'm going to hit that one more time to make sure we hit the highlights here. Okay. So quote, a brain imaging technique may help predict whether people with major depression will respond best to treatment with psychotherapy or a commonly prescribed drug, end quote. Okay. They go through describing the study, and at the end they say, quote, one limitation of this potential imaging biomarker, so they're talking about sort of the, the part of the brain that might be associated with the success or non-success, is that it may not predict when neither of these therapies would work, end quote. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm like, okay. I don't know exactly how to interpret that, um, but I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, well, if in one case, a decreased level of activity predicts success in one group and an increased success in the other group, how are you going to go about determining how to diagnose and how to select? And this is only successful in 36 to 40% of the people. So there is a 60 to 64% chance that it's not going to work at all um, in these groups. I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at this thinking... I don't know that I'm really confident that this PET scan has revealed a lot to me that's uh, important in, in making a decision about the outcome of a particular person with a particular intervention just based on the PET scan alone. The researchers themselves don't sound particularly confident either. <laughs> well, the people who reported it at least. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the pretty well, I think, wraps up sort of discussing how the PET and the CT scan are used. So I think we're ready for some take-homes. Yeah, let's take it home. Sweet. So I think the, the first thing that we can definitely acknowledge is that both PET scans and CT scans are pretty amazing and helpful when it comes to medical diagnosis. Yeah. Never before in medical history have we been able to take a look at the inner biological events of a human being, you know, without them being dead or without there being some pretty invasive procedures. So the fact that we have this technology is pretty amazing. Yeah. It, yeah, I completely agree. You know, I think going back to the point that sort of peering inside the skin and, and through the soft tissue and, and hard tissue of our body, like this is a pretty valuable activity for assessing the biological variables that are part of any behavioral interaction. You know, we are biological organisms and we're interacting with a really complex dynamic environment, which as human beings and animals and plants do this to an extent too, they also interact with a lot of contextual features that are just really complicated and interrelated in a really um, remarkable way. And the amount of variability that exists there is kind of amazing. But I think, you know, we'll touch on that a little bit more in some future episodes. It's just always important to be mindful of the limitations and extent to which these biological systems that they're detectable by technology. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the CT and the PET scan and going back to the fMRI scans. And especially for things as complex and multifaceted as depression, you know, that's that's a big ask to try and dissect so much of the relevant features of an experience like depression by pointing to this particular piece of technology that takes an average of a certain amount of chemical in a certain part of the brain and say like, okay, that's, there's probably some useful information in there. And I think there's, you know, we've got some ways to go. And I, I think probably the research community would generally agree with that point, but um, you had sort of one final important point on, on the utility of that as well. Yeah, so I think overall, what we can acknowledge is that the utility in diagnosing psychological conditions and validating treatment 
are lacking at this point. And the research itself, you know, it's it's happening and it's progressing and hopefully we'll get more of it. Um, but as it stands right now, to be able to reliably diagnose something like depression and then be able to validate treatment based on a PET scan, it, it seems like we're a little ways off from that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the totally fair way of putting it. Cool. Cool. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up then. This has been Abraham. And this is Miranda. And thanks for listening. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.